You're listening to Work Tape, episode 83. Welcome to another edition of the Work Tape podcast. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Groove and Grover, as usual. And uh, we're going to continue uh, in our series, Technology and Music and the dynamic between the two. Last episode, we talked extensively about um, some of the early uses of sampling. And then, of course, we kind of segued into a bigger overall conversation about sampling clearance and originality. And so much of what is made up on Billboard today is kind of built around sampling and kind of making a, a bit of an easy buck in regards to capitalizing on the nostalgia and familiarity of these existing samples. But this kind of brings me to what I alluded to in the last episode, which is on the flip side of that coin, because there always is a flip side, you have producers now who are making sample packs and creating original compositions and packaging them together for the sole purpose of getting around a lot of pesky sample clearance, you know, laws and and boundaries and to really make the process easier for artists and well, other producers as well, who may want the sampled feel to their music, but don't want to necessarily go through a ton of legal loopholes in order to get uh, the sample done. And so one of the biggest proprietors of this movement is this guy out of Canada. His name is Frank Dukes. He's a Toronto producer. I want to say he's in his late 20s, uh, maybe early 30s, who basically did some studio work with some more independent type artists and uh, saw the process of these bands and artists recording to tape and you know the emotion and the soul that came behind it. And basically came up with the idea to create a series of compositions, original compositions that were catered to these artists. And that's what eventually became the Kingsway Music Library. And one of the places that you can find a lot of those compositions and similar types of packs is through a website called The Drum Broker, um, where you get drum kits as well as sample packs. And... Like I said, it's a really interesting flip side of the coin. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of, oh, yeah, flipping. I gotcha. <laughs> um, but I think it's a really cool kind of response to a lot of issues that people have had with sampling in the past. And, you know, like I said, in regards to a lot of clearance issues. And as you can, or as, it's noted a lot of these sample packs are starting to really get pretty major traction on their own. And so on the, the retorting side of the things that we talked about last episode in regards to a lot of sampling kind of lacking originality, now you have the response to that, which is basically to have these original compositions that sound like old school samples to kind of give that feel. And I think it's an interesting compromise for sure. And I think it's really invaluable for both producers and artists because it's kind of a win-win for both. 
um, because the producers get their name out there, get their, you know, sound onto, you know, records. And then the artists are able to kind of really freely create without having to worry about basically getting sued over uncleared samples or having their music just outright not come out because of needing to clear the samples. So as a producer myself, I think it's something that's really, really cool to see. And I'm very excited to see kind of the evolution of it. But what are your thoughts on this one, Isaac? I mean, I know that you also have a bit of a producing background. And for those who may not know, that intro track was also credited to Isaac Rubin Grover. So um, <laughs> how, how do you feel about producers creating these packs to sound kind of like the past, but to also put it in a, a modern context? Yeah, this one's a loaded question and you knew it. So with all of the varying opinions in this uh, category or culture, because it is a culture, I mean, it's a huge culture. Um, so many people, especially the old heads, AKA the MPC heads, but like the classic MPC heads, a lot of them are, it's, it's, it's a mix. A lot of them don't like it because they think that, well, you need to find the vinyl. You need to go to like a record store. You need to bring it home and then have a record player and then sample it into the MPC and then chop it up yourself and then rinse and repeat and stack the samples, crate digging as they call it. So you know, Splice and Tracklib are basically just crate digging programs, but it's not really crate digging anymore because it's virtual, which it's the same in idea though. It's just not the same literal process. And so people are getting really caught up in a literal process of it. And they're saying, well, it's not the same thing. And they're right. It's not the same thing, but the result is the exact same is what we're kind of getting at. The result is the exact same. I mean, what's the difference between you doing it yourself or getting it from someone who did it himself? So, um, my opinion on it is do whatever works for your workflow because, again, I can be aware of really tight opinions and very loose opinions on things. But as long as you're not hurting anyone, I say just go do it, right? Mm -hmm. As long as it's an upstanding or a moral thing, as long as it's a good thing that you're doing, who cares what people say? So for me, I like the idea of crate digging, but I don't have a record play right now, so I can't really do that. You know, mine was given away a while back and that was in my family and I don't know what happened to it. So I can't do that. I have a bunch of my dad's records sitting around, but I can't really do anything with it. So I resort to the digital way. You know, I just go online and I find a sample. I put it in my MPC. Now, what I do also is I sample from my iPhone because you can do it through auxiliary. And so that works very well as well. And I like it. It's cool. It, it gives me a little bit of a feeling of, oh, I'm using a record player. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fun. It's fun. But at the end of the day, especially if you want like a lossy format, or you want like, you know, better quality. I think vinyl's great. I just feel like it's a novelty, though. Like, it's cool. Mm -hmm. And yes, you do get a certain sound. And here's another thing. These NPCs and drum machines. And yes, technically, they're not coloring the sound because they are their own sound. So they're not coloring anything. It's just going straight in. But I'm just going to say it. Yes, they color the sound so to speak as soon as you put in these samplers the conversion the hardware i mean that's going to have a certain character and so yes when it comes to the sample packs i don't know what's going on to be honest i don't want to say something the wrong way but from what i know is that they run 
a lot of these samples through their hardware machines. Yes. And so when they make a sample pack and they give it to you, it's already colored, so to speak, by the hardware and the equipment that they use to get it to you. So it has the same character that, you know, someone from the 90s would do it. Yeah. But the thing is, some people don't have a drum machine. Some people just have a DAW. And yes, you can color the sound with your DAW, but some people just want a plug and play solution. They just want something that sounds like it's from an MPC or or whatever and put it in their DAW and it works well, right? And then they can mix it and master however they want to afterwards. So I honestly think it's fine. And I think it's really practical because of lawsuits and stuff like that. So legally, it's really nice. Mm -hmm. But dude, honestly, my opinion is who cares as long as it's morally upstanding, go ahead, do it. Don't worry about what someone says. I don't think you're less of a producer if you do it that way. Yeah. I just think that you're not a, if you're, if look, if you're just a beat maker and, and I heard this topic somewhere else, if you're just a beat maker, it doesn't mean that you're a producer, but if you are a beat maker who also produces, who cares about how you produce, as long as you're doing what the name says or the definition says, then you are that name, mm-hmm. but you're not less of a beat maker or a producer just because your method is different. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of in a big way, and and I guess hence the term cooking up music. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, I guess there is a lot of like truth in that, in the sense that with people who are definitely beat making, producing, um, however you want to define it, you know, they essentially are kind of like chefs in you know a kitchen, in the sense where they may be pulling from a lot of different ingredients and different resources and whatnot, and ultimately are kind of trying to just come up with the right sonic chemistry to fit whatever they want to do. And each kind of track and song that they do calls for like different flavors, I guess, of sound. I guess that's kind of what you're referring to with the whole idea of these sample packs or these compositions being processed through in a lot of cases, like, yeah, very like old school hardware. Yeah. Cables, beatboxes, preamps, all of these different, you know, converters, like the more that you run it through, you know, it's going to do something. I think it's distortion. And so that's where the analog character comes from because digital is perfect. Right. But analog, I guess analog means that there's always going to be some sort of distortion, some sort of thing happening. It's going to be imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. But that's where you get a lot of your character. And that's why a lot of our ears, they run toward analog recordings because something's imperfect. But that imperfection adds up to what we call warmth and thickness and saturation. Yeah, and it's pretty evident, too, because so many of the sample packs that I see, they write in the description of the the sample pack, they will list all the gear that they used in order to get the samples. And most of it is like different types of tape machine, you know, different types of these, you know, really old school keyboards, like profits and stuff like that, or, you know, different, yeah, sequencers and whatnot. So it's really cool with the digital revolution, because you really are able to kind of find your flavor in a way, and kind of find something that is going to work for you. Um, and I guess that was the case even when people were, you know, physically crate digging too. But I don't know, I felt like with the digital way in terms of just like the accessibility and you can really like titrate your search even better to, you know, find things that will suit 
whatever you're going for. Yeah. So the democratizing of equipment and resources, I think it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You know, you don't want to make these multi-thousand dollars of equipment accessible to everyone because it devalues the product. It devalues the drive to get something. So I do have a lot of respect for the value of an object or something that people want. On the flip side, I think that there are a lot of things that could be more available to people at the same time. So when it comes to, you know, samples and stuff like that, some people just want a flipping kick, but they don't want to buy an NPC. They don't want to buy multi-thousand dollars of equipment just so they can get a certain sound, which again, I get it. I understand the value of the equipment, but still like, if someone wants to make a business out of that and give away samples for free, like if someone buys an NPC and has all of this equipment and they want to give out sample packs or sell them, then I don't know why people have to be salty about that. And I, and I, you know why I know they're salty about it? Because they bought all this equipment. They put thousands and thousands of dollars in this equipment and they're saying, well, now that's making it worse for us or now everyone's doing what we're doing. It's like, okay, so what? So like, just enjoy what you're doing, right? Right. To an extent, I can understand where they're coming from, but I think they handle it poorly and they don't see they're hypocrites because they don't understand that that's what drum machines are. Yes. You didn't need a drummer anymore. Right. So I don't understand why we're like, oh, well, we do it the tried and true way. We do it the right way. Like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, your machine. I'm not saying it put someone out of business, but it's the same principle. Your machine replaced what would cost you thousands and thousands of dollars to get a studio musician. Now you can just sample from any record. Right. So if you want to split hairs here, you're a hypocrite and you're also cheating. Right. So that's why you can't point the finger because again, as I say, you got three or four, I think it's three pointing back at you. Yeah. So like, that's literally what I'm hearing. And I personally also believe that a lot of it's just very classist. Mm. It's classist to think that, Everyone has to have around $10,000, $20,000 of equipment to make a good album when you can just buy a $2,000, $1,000 laptop and get a $100 MIDI keyboard and produce a hit. Oh, yeah. I'm cool with that. I mean, I wasn't one of those people who put a million dollars into my studio. Right. So I can see where they're salty. But guess what? You now have to play the game. You know how to play smarter and not harder. Right. So I personally... I like the idea of sampling through a beat machine. I mean, I didn't have a beatbox for a long time, right? Now I got one. But if I didn't before, I just probably would have been getting sample packs all the time. But even with an MPC, I kind of like the simplicity of just getting a sample pack. So I personally like both. But I think it's just ridiculous that people are saying, well, in order to finish a race, you have to go up the rock and under the log and you got to do it the way I did. And it's like, really? Because I see a straightaway right there where I don't have to go through any obstacles. I'm just going to go that way. And you can't say that they're not running the race just because they're not taking the same path that you are. Right. Absolutely. There definitely is a conversation about or a point, which is to work smarter, not harder. And as soon as there is an avenue to really do that, musicians and producers definitely take it like without really any hesitation. And you brought up an interesting topic in itself, which is that whole like commodification of like vintage hardware or like really prized possessions in terms of audio recording. So I guess the follow-up question that I have is actually with um, the rise of something like the slate plugins or like modeling microphones 
or the, even the universal audio plugins that are meant to sound like these really kind of expensive preamps that are on all these, you know, great records. How do you feel about that in regards to so much of these companies making it basically almost their sole business to give accessibility to what was like once out of reach? Because at least from my perspective, as a bedroom producer and, you know, one that's, you know, coming out of a very minimalist setup, I think it's kind of cool that I can get, you know, something that's very similar to like, I don't know, a U87 or a 251 on the cheap. Like, I think that that's pretty cool. And that flexibility is is dope, especially for the type of music I want to make and whatnot. But, you know, you brought up a good point about you know, the value of these kinds of, you know, big pieces of hardware. So with like Universal Audio, Stephen Slate Audio, and those types of things, like the modeling microphone setups, I mean, do you not like that? Or do you feel what you said before, which is also that it kind of does create a, a certain accessibility and like creativity for, for producers? Where do you stand on that? All right. So once upon a time, beat machines and synthesizers, they used to be upwards from like $5,000, $10,000. They used to be very pricey. Nowadays, you can buy a lot of these similar things. Now, a lot of them aren't analog. I won't lie. Yes. Now things are so digital. People are now trying to fill the analog niche. They're like mm -hmm. niching it down now. now. Now analog is like an area for people to capitalize on it in like a niche area, which is funny, right? How it's flipped. So anyway... Once upon a time, a lot of this equipment was several thousand dollars. Now you can get an MPC. In fact, you can get a standalone MPC, the MPC one brand new for like 700, 800, maybe 900 bucks. Right. I think it's like 700, 800 bucks. So uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have the live too, which is great. I like the portability. That's just me. But you can get hardware beatbox for 700 bucks, maybe street price. You can get it for like, I mean, street price, you can get pretty much any of the older ones, maybe not a 3000 or a 2,500, but brand new modern day beatbox. You can get one for like six, 700 bucks. Like that's amazing. And it has some sort of analog or digital conversion, whatever. Right. Yes. But it has a certain sound to it. So compare that to the $5,000 NPCs, $4,000 NPCs of the nineties. So like, and I get it, you know, well, our dollar doesn't go very far. Like, yeah, but it's sure a heck of a lot cheaper. I mean, even the MPC-X is like 2,500 brand new, 2,200. Yeah. So like, that's still half of 5,000. Yeah. So people, I think, are complaining too much. Now, when it comes to compressors and EQs, yes, there is a character to this hardware. But honestly, I'm going to go back to your point. Minimalism minimalism is fantastic. Mm. Things are expensive enough. Do you think we need to be buying upwards like $25,000 of equipment? And don't get me wrong. If you can do that, go ahead and do that. People like the tactile, the feedback, the touching things. Like it's great, right? Yeah. People hate on bedroom producers so much. And what's crazy is because so many people are masquerading as bedroom producers, but don't produce. Mm. That's the problem. They just make beats. Now, again, like I said, I don't think a beat maker is a producer, but you can be a beat maker who is also a producer. Some people just make, well, technically you are because you do produce beats. So I take that back. But some people just produce beats and that's it. That's what I meant. Rather than they produce albums and produce. So producer has many different connotations behind the name. Right. But 
anyway, so like, I feel like a lot of people who get crapped on for being a bedroom producer, they don't really truly produce. And so guess what? There are some people who are very, very strategic in a minimalism. Yeah. They don't have a bunch of hardware compressors and hardware synthesizers because guess what? They're smart. They know that it's a liability. It can burn in a fire. They got to move. Yeah. Gear acquisition syndrome. Gas is a real thing. And people just acquire hardware equipment and do nothing with it. Right. It gets cluttery. The studio gets crazy. Right. Right. So a lot of these producers are smart. They, and I'm not saying it's smart as in you're only smart if you're minimalist. No, some people, their strategy is having hardware equipment because it works for them. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with, or some people mix it. I, I'm very much a fan of hybrid. You know, you maybe have some hardware stuff, but you have some uh, software. But I personally like having mostly software because, you know, sometimes you're moving and I don't want to have to move all of this equipment. So I have, you know, a bass guitar. I have acoustic guitar. I have, um, I don't have an acoustic piano because that's a luxury I wish I had, <laughs> but I don't. But I have emulations of acoustic pianos and I have different ones from different companies and they all have a different character. And so I layer, I use one, whatever, right? Yeah. So I got to do what I can do. In fact, oh my gosh, the new Rhodes Mark 8. I mean, we could talk about that later. That thing is like 11,000, 12,000, depending on which one you go with. You can actually get a classic 76 or 73 from like uh, the 70s, I think for like 2000. Maybe I'm going to ballpark 2000 because give or take a few. Mm -hmm. So the Mark 8 today is pretty, you know, it's pricey, but it also can do a lot more than the, the roads from the past. It can do way more. We can get into that later. Yes. But it's analog. It is an analog piece of equipment. It's hardware. Yeah. And I can't afford it, but they have a plug-in for 300 bucks and I'm going to cop that once it's like fully released, right? So I would prefer the hardware, but the plug-in will work for me because minimalist. I got my Arturia Key Lab. It's 88 keys, so I can work with 25 key uh, synthesizers or 73 key electric pianos or an 88 key acoustic piano, you know? So I like the versatility with that. And guess what? I can pull up any synth or any keyboard that I have in plug-in form. And I like that simplicity. So the only bad thing about a minimalist setup is it can affect your creativity. And so some people feel less inspired by pulling up plugins and software. And, and I agree, you aren't as inspired when it's software. Hmm. But that's where, you know, the law of diminishing returns comes in. That's also where it becomes a uh, um, risk versus reward, you know? Would you take minimalism if it's less inspiring or would you take gas if it means that it's more expensive and it's more bulky? Right. But you get your creativity, right? And it just depends, I guess. I guess some people might be more creative with software and people being less creative with hardware. So we're also different. Sure. But, you know, you got to pick and choose your battles. And I know I talk about it very seriously, but I'm not that serious when it comes to music. I'm very loose when I make music. I just enjoy the process, right? Gotcha. But what I'm kind of like up against is more like people relax. It's not that big a deal. You know, like some people like it minimalist. Some people like acquiring hardware and you and I both, I think are more minimalist and I prefer minimalism. Of course, there's a ton of hardware that I want. So to get me wrong, I probably would give in to gas. I totally would, mm -hmm. but I'm super happy with minimalism. Yeah. Because it works and it's powerful if you know what to do with it. Yes. 
I agree. Oh, another problem with software is a tendency to not use all of your plugins because you keep buying more and more and more. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, you never even use it in a simple way because it's typically subtle little changes and subtle little things you do with these emulations that make a big difference. But people, we have so many options that we don't do anything with them. What's funny is it's just like gas, but it's like software acquisition syndrome or plugin acquisition syndrome. Might as well be pass or SAS because... It's basically gas in a software or the virtual sense. Yeah. Like you're just stockpiling and you're not really using them in a minimalist fashion, which is how people even used hardware to begin with. They weren't tweaking not like every single knob and wasting hours and hours trying to open different plugins like we're doing now. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think that there is so much of a tendency for producers to stockpile plugins technology has progressed so much to the point where I feel like now is really the best time to be a minimalist producer. I feel like now it's probably easier and more accessible than ever to really just have, you know, kind of a very simple yet straightforward setup. I mean, in terms of like just pianos and keys, I mean, you have stuff like Keyscape, which is just like unbelievably good. And, you know, that's a plugin that's only, you know, I think three or $400 and you get, you know, piano sounds and road sounds that are triple, maybe even quadruple that, to be really honest. And kind of in the same vein, I feel very similarly about the modeling microphones too, the ones that are able to, you know, model these really high end microphones, you know, because not everybody can get a Sony C800 or a Neumann U87, but they want that level of professionalism and that sheen and that kind of just cleanliness to the production. And I think with like the Universal Audio one is, I think, or the Townsend Labs, I think is actually the company that does, or one of the companies that does a modeling microphone. And I think that they're the best actually in terms of emulating um, so much of those tones. And I think that in a way, it's really cool just because so many of these producers are going to have that level of professionalism to their music without having to fork over a bunch of money, especially in kind of this economy where, you know, inflation has, you know, been killer in this economy and whatnot. And a lot of people who are, you know, starting out who want, their stuff to sound good, it's much easier to do that now just with the way that um, the actual software technology has advanced, but also just companies making, you know, microphones and recording gear and sometimes even doing bundles, you know, where they get, you know, a microphone and an audio interface for, you know, less than, you know, a couple hundred bucks, you know, so I think it's just really cool to see that. And I think it's going to get people into the craft of music making. Like it'll definitely get some of the people who are maybe sitting on the fence or who maybe wanted to do it, but who thought were kind of, you know, maybe priced out. They're definitely going to be able to do it. And then I think for those who are more seasoned in terms of uh, music making, I think it just gives them another set of tools in their arsenal in regards to recording. And in a lot of cases with the modeling microphones, it can streamline their process. The Townsend Labs is really interesting because it has the ability for you to change the microphone sound even after 
you're done recording. Yeah, post-production, yep. That's the thing that's really dope because say you bring in an artist and you're not really exactly sure, or a singer or a rapper, and you're not exactly sure what microphone is going to sound best, it doesn't really matter because you have that flexibility even after they're done recording to try a bunch of different microphones and preamps. And I think actually with the Townsend Labs ones, you can blend, I think, multiple microphones together. So say you want the robustness of a U47, but you really like the top end of a 251. You can blend the two together and kind of create more of like your own sound, I guess. And that's, you know, I think really, really invaluable to producers, recording engineers, just because you don't have to have a whole bunch of, you know, microphones in your locker on hand and go through the process of changing each one and, you know, dialing in settings for each one. It really is honestly good for hardware or software to have a minimalist setup. And that was kind of the point is that with hardware, if you had like one or two mics and you had one or two compressors or like one or two of each thing, you're more likely to get something done. Now you might not have that many options, but that's kind of what gets the project. Like you're able to finish a project. Yeah. You might not have every single thing at, at your fingertips, but you're able to finish projects because other people are caught up in all of their plugins and all of their hardware that they've acquired and they don't finish projects because they have so much stuff. They can't focus. Focus is really big for artists today. Right. And it definitely plays into also the fact that a lot of music from artists is being made like on the road while they're touring too. And so the more minimalist the setup is, actually a lot of times the more portable it can be to where if if you're in a position where you're touring and you're in cities, but you're also having, you know, the creativity striking because you are, you know, doing music all the time it just makes it that much easier for you to record no matter where you may be in, in the world. So that's another thing too, that I think is really invaluable. And then kind of just one more thing, you mentioned this whole idea of kind of it being a little classist too, in regards to extensive hardware setups versus the kind of more minimalist, you know, digital based setups. There definitely is a divide between the old head producers who believe in everything being strictly analog. Yeah, if you can afford it. Yeah, with like very minimal or like little to no like digital production. And then the kind of newer age producer who has some good hardware, but is really based a lot more in just pushing the boundaries of VSTs and virtual emulation. I think the hybrid studio really is the best. It really is the best of both worlds. I think so too. I really do. I think that having a couple of really solid microphones that are, you know, pieces of hardware that, you know, aren't just trying to emulate something else, but like that are really good as standalone, I think is good. Yeah. Just pick one or two different characters and go with it. And then I think also having some versatility, I think really especially in the instruments with VSTs. I think actually VSTs are really great because you get so many different sounds. So where, you know, inspiration can really come just by even you cycling through the different sounds. Maybe you're sitting on an idea or a set of chords and you're not really feeling it, but then you find that perfect road sound or you find that perfect you know, sound and omnisphere or whatever you're going to be using. 
And then all of a sudden it just flows. You're able to kind of bring your idea to fruition. Um, But yeah, there is a big divide in terms of like that whole thing. And it's really weird because I just feel like music is one thing that is, you know, generally loved and appreciated by pretty much everyone. But it seems like there's just so much gatekeeping in regards to listening and enjoying music, to creating music. There's just a lot of division and a lot of gatekeeping that, quite frankly, is like really unnecessary. And especially in the cases of people who have like the, you know, tens of thousands of dollars set up or they're kind of like all analog, there's definitely like a level of like snobbishness. Oh, definitely. And to a certain extent, even like pretension too. Like it kind of comes off, it can come off as pretentious and just like not really one to adjust with the times. And, you know, I understand that definitely with a lot of analog gear, you are going to get a specific sound that is when you do something completely analog, like the whole process or pretty much the whole process, like except with maybe the exception of actually like mixing and mastering, because that's pretty much all digital now. But like, I'm talking about the actual recording being strictly analog going into all these physical pieces of gear and and maybe even recording the tape as like a lot of people have done, have started to kind of get back into. Yes, you do get a certain sheen and, and sound that is basically almost like impossible to like truly replicate. But I don't think that those who favor physical hardware pieces, kind of bringing back to your point, that doesn't make them a superior producer. It really just depends a lot on the skill set of the producer and the artist and ultimately their relationship, which is going to create great records because so much of the hits and so much of stuff that I would probably consider you know, more in modern day classic territory, it would shock you how minimal the setups are for some of those songs. Or maybe it wouldn't because now you're, you know, pushing for the minimalism thing, but it would shock maybe most people. Definitely. Like most people would think, oh, surely this was recorded on a, you know, a microphone that cost five bands and ran through, you know, this like $20,000 vocal chain setup when in actuality the whole setup of everything may have only costed maybe three to do the whole thing and yet it's a hit yeah just let it be is what i say let it be and you know keep to your hardware equipment um if that's what's good for you and keep to your software that's what's good for you or hybridize them both yeah so that's kind of a really good wrapping up spot speaking of you know an artist or a producer rather who was able to hybridize a bit and use digital and analog, but more so analog, but definitely did adapt a bit into the digital space. Uh, Jay Dilla. I mean, Jay Dilla is, I think, one of the goats in terms of modern day producing. I mean, you hear his influence everywhere from the lo-fi streams to many of the R&B and hip hop that's being made today. So I can't wait to finally dive a little bit deeper with this podcast into Jay Dilla and to just, you know, let the people know. In most cases, if the people don't know who Jay Dilla is, it's they've probably been under a rock. But 
or they just listen to the songs and just don't have the name association. But I'm really excited to put some more people on to just how influential he was in regards to utilizing hardware equipment, also utilizing digital stuff, just in terms of the very point of it being solely like the skill of the producer. Like he is probably the epitome of that just because so much of what he was doing was not digital. He was chopping a lot just off of the MPC and his ears, which when you hear some of the stuff that he chopped, it's crazy how he did that without a computer. But I can't wait to get more into that. This has been the Work Tape Podcast. Once again, it is your boy, Money Mitchell, Isaac Reuben Grover. Much peace and love to everybody listening to this podcast and stay tuned for some even more episodes. Peace. Stay tuned. Peace.